Well, good morning and happy Father's Day. Uh, my name is Austin Slater, and I'm here with my wife, Jessie, and our son, Brooks, who are sitting right over here. Um, I am the campus minister associate of RUF International at UCF. And after hearing me say that, you may be thinking, wait, I thought Hardy Reynolds was the RUF campus minister at UCF. And you're right, he is. Hardy works for RUF National, and I work for RUF International. RUF International, the organization I work for, is a sister organization of RUF National on college campuses. And we are the PCA's college ministry to international students who are coming to study at American universities. And because around 99% of the international students that are coming are not Christians, our ministry looks a lot different than Hardy's and RUF's. Our ministry revolves heavily around hospitality and evangelism. Um, I'd love to talk with you more about what I do after the service, and so please come find me. I also have uh, our newsletter sign up if you'd like to get on that, but that's all I'll say about RUF International for now. Well, before jumping into Psalm 19, I did just want to mention one more thing. Um, Jesse and I are aware of the situation that you all are in as a church, and we just wanted to let you know that we have been and we'll continue to be praying for you all as you navigate this trying and challenging season in the life of your body. Uh, we really can't imagine how hard this must be for you all, and so please know that we will continue to lift you up before our Father's throne of grace. Well, with those things being said, I want to now shift our focus to the text before us this morning. We'll be looking at Psalm 19, Psalm chapter 19. I'll give you a few moments to flip there. We're going to read the whole chapter. This is the word of the Lord. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber. And like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens and its circuit to the end of them. And there is nothing hidden from his heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned, and keeping them there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servants also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Would you pray with me? Father, Psalm 19 tells us that your word is more to be desired than gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. We ask that you would make that true for each of us today. By your Spirit, would you plant your word deep in our hearts and use it to transform us more into the image of your Son, Jesus. 
Let the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. In Christ's name, amen. Well, when you first meet someone, how is it that you get to know them? You may learn a few things about someone by the way that they dress or by watching the way that they interact with others, but those first impressions could also be totally off. My wife will tell you that the first time she met college freshman Austin, she was convinced that I was just another arrogant frat bro at JMU. And while she may have had some good reasons for thinking that, I wore my Sperry's, my button-down shirts, and I may have walked around like I was hot stuff. And so while there was probably some good reason to that, or for her to think that, I like to think that there was a little more to me than what she first thought. But how was she supposed to know that? How was she supposed to know what I was like? How do any of us come to know what others are like on a deep, personal level? In short, through revelation. We are reliant on others to reveal themselves to us. We need them to tell us their stories, to show us what they do and don't like, and to share their beliefs and convictions with us. Relationship begins with revelation. The same is true about God. How can we know who God is and what he is like? We are embodied beings who are finite, limited, and sinful. God, on the other hand, is a spirit, almighty, eternal, and perfect. How can we know anything about him, let alone be in relationship with him, when he is so transcendent, so great? Through revelation, we are reliant on God to condescend to us and to reveal himself in such a way that we can understand who he is and what his will is for our lives. Psalm 19 presents us with two of the ways that God has revealed himself to us. First, in verses 1 to 6, it tells us that God has revealed himself through creation. Second, in verses 7 to 11, it shows us that God has revealed himself to us through his written word. The psalm then concludes in verses 12 to 14 by showing us the proper response to God's revelation. So those are the the three points for our note takers. God's revelation through creation, God's revelation through his word, and the proper response to this revelation. And as we consider each of these points, There's kind of one main idea that I want us to cling on to this morning, and that idea is this. God's revelation through creation and scripture exposed the depths of our sin. Therefore, we must unite ourselves to Jesus in faith. God's revelation exposes the depths of our sin. Therefore, we must unite ourselves to Jesus in faith. And so with that being said, let's focus our attention on verses 1 to 6 and see what the psalm has to say about how God reveals himself through his creation. Verses 1 to 6 introduce us to two different characters. We've got the heavens, or the sky, and the sun. David takes both of these characters, and he demonstrates how they reveal God to us in their own unique ways. The first character he discusses in verses 1 to 4 is the heavens. And to explain how the heavens reveal God to us, David shows us the what, the when, and the who of the heavens revelation. What, when, and who. So first, the what of the heavens revelation. Look back at verse 1. Verse 1 says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. So what is being revealed by the heavens? The glory of God. The glory of God through his 
handiwork. Or as Romans 1 puts it, the eternal power and divine nature of God are what are being displayed. The magnificence, beauty, and greatness of the heavens point to the power, creativity, and majesty of their creator. They declare his glory. So that's the what. Verse 2 continues with the when of the heavens revelation. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. That verb pours out in verse 2 is perhaps better translated as gushes forth. The heavens are continuously gushing forth speech about God. They reveal the glory of God to us at all times, day to day and night to night. So we've got the what and the when of the heavens revelation. The final aspect that David gives us is the who. To whom do the heavens reveal the glory of God? Verses 3 and 4 tell us, There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In other words, the heavens declare the glory of God to peoples and places all over the world. It doesn't matter what language you speak or how far out in the boonies of central Florida you live, whoever you are and wherever you are, you'll be able to hear, as it were, the heavens declaring the glory of God. So that's the revelation of the heavens. The second character that we're introduced to at the end of verse 4 is the sun. And these verses are a little difficult to understand because David uses a couple of similes that are kind of similes that are kind of confusing when you first read them. And so because of that, let's go through these verses line by line and see if we can't figure out what David is trying to communicate. Starting at the end of verse 4, David says, "In them," that's referring back to the heavens from verse 1, he has set a tent for the sun. Another way to understand this would be that God has given the sun a a dwelling place throughout the night. Ancient Israelites didn't understand the whole earth revolving around the sun thing, and so David makes the sense of the sun going away at night by thinking that, oh, it must go to some kind of tent or dwelling place. He then continues with his similes in verse 5. It says, in them he has set a tent for the sun. Here's the first one, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber. And then secondly, like a strong man runs its course with joy. What is David trying to communicate through these two similes? Well, for the first one, David is saying that like a bridegroom comes out of his chamber the morning after his wedding night, radiating with joy, so the sun rises from its tent and radiates the joy and glory of God to all creation. The second simile is that of a strong man running its course with joy. The image that I have here is of a warrior sprinting to their destination with joy and delight in what they are doing. If you ever watched Jamaican sprinter Usain Bolt run a race, think of it like that. When you watched Bolt run, you could just tell that he loved what he did. He exuded joy and delight as he ran his race, typically finishing with that classic big smile because he knew he just won another gold medal. Like the warrior or Usain Bolt The sun runs its course from sunrise to sunset with joy, radiating the glory and majesty of God all along the way. David concludes this section in verse 6 by showing that like the heavens, the sun's reach is to the end of the earth. There is nothing hidden from its heat. All of creation witnesses the sun as it radiates the joy and glory of its maker. One of my Old Testament professors from seminary, I think 
provides us with a helpful summary of these verses when he explains, quote, the quintessential display of God's splendor is quite naturally said to be the sun. Like a bridegroom bursting forth from his wedding chamber the morning after, and then like an Olympic runner sprinting to the finish line, the sun rises in radiance, runs its course, and sets in magnificence. Not a nook or cranny in creation escapes the dazzling rays that reveal divine glory. Well, when we think about how God reveals himself to us through what he has created, perhaps the most obvious comparison would be to that of an artist who leaves traces of his or her, him, her or himself in their work. Many artists use their artwork to help them process through difficult situations that have happened in their lives. It could be emotional or physical pain that they experienced. Or they use their artwork to push political or religious ideas or agendas. For these artists, their pieces of work aren't just meaningless works. No, through them, they are revealing things about themselves to anyone who will stop and consider. The same is true of God's handiwork. Like the psalmist vividly tells us, God's creation gushes forth speech about him. It reveals the glory, creativity, and beauty of a God of God to all people at all times. So the question remains, what are we to do in response to this revelation? Well, I think one appropriate response to God's revelation of himself in creation is simply to bask in it, wonder at it, and enjoy the God who made it. God has revealed his glory to us in the things that he has made, the heavens, the sun, the trees, the lakes, the beach, the ocean. They all reveal the glory of God to those who will stop and pay attention. And so take some time to do just that this week. Stop and pay attention to God's creation. Now, this doesn't mean that you have to go all Bear grills, Man vs. Wild, and do a bunch of hipster nature stuff. Instead, choose to do some small, intentional things throughout your week. Leave your phone in the house while you walk your dog. Take your 15-minute break at work outside on the bench. And as you do these things, allow your senses to, to be overwhelmed by what's around you. Pay attention to the colors of the flowers in your neighbor's garden. Feel the breeze on your face, if that even exists at this place in Florida. Uh, listen to the birds singing in the trees. Take some time to listen to nature's song of glory this week. If you do, you will encounter the living God as he reveals himself through the things that he has made. Bask in his glorious revelation. Wonder at it and rejoice in the God who made it all by the power of his word. So to summarize, we've seen in verses 1 to 6 that God has partially revealed himself to us through the things that he has made, namely the heavens and the sun. Now David is going to shift our attention in verses 7 to 11 to a, a different mode of revelation, a better kind of revelation, revelation through his written word. Now you may be wondering, why did I just say that God's revelation through his word is better than how he has revealed himself in creation? In short, because his word draws us closer to the heart of God as he reveals himself more clearly and intimately to us through it. We notice this almost immediately as we see the differences in the mention of God's name between the two sections. Look back with me. In verses 1 to 6, David uses the generic Hebrew word for God, Elohim, one time in verse 1. Contrast that with verses 7 to 11 where David uses the personal covenant name of God, 
represented in your Bibles with the all caps, Lord. He uses that six different times. And so what David is communicating through this is that different from God's creation, which only reveals the glory of God as the creator, God's word reveals his loving and gracious heart for his people as their covenant Lord. So with that being said, let's consider what this section tells us about the word of that covenant Lord. And to answer this question, I want us first to pay attention to the repetitive pattern that we see in verses 7 to 9. Each of these verses give us a different subject for the word of God, a description of it, and then a statement of what the word does. Another way to see the pattern is noun, adjective, verb. The six different subjects are synonyms and are used to give us a comprehensive understanding of the word of God. All of God's words, his law, testimony, precepts, all that are equally authoritative and good. In light of that, I want to spend a majority of our time looking at the adjectives and verbs that David uses. David chooses six different adjectives to describe Scripture. Let's look at those one by one. First, he says that it's perfect. It's complete in every way. Nothing is lacking in God's Word. Second, we see that God's Word is sure. It's reliable and trustworthy, and for that reason, we can be completely confident in it. Third, David tells us that it's right. There is no deceit in it. We can trust that what it says is good and will not lead us astray. Fourth, God's word is pure. It does no wrong. It is free of guilt or fault. Fifth, God's word is clean. It is not tainted or infected by sin. It is holy, set apart. Lastly, David describes God's word as true. It contains no error and speaks no falsehood. The things that it says and the claims that it makes are completely and unequivocally true. If you stop and think about it, those are some pretty astounding claims that David is making about God's word. He really wants us, his readers, to be amazed by God's revelation in Scripture. But here's the thing, he doesn't stop there. He doesn't think it's enough to just describe God's word. He also wants to tell us what it does. Let's look at the verbs he uses. He begins in verse 7 by telling us the word revives the soul. Like a dead body coming back to life through CPR, so the word of God revives our dead and weary souls. It does that chiefly in the way that it shows us the good news of the gospel. Second, we see that it makes wise the simple. God's word is able to give understanding and insight to anyone, no matter their IQ. It instructs us in good and right living so that we might flourish in this world that God has created. Third, we see that God's word rejoices the heart. The Bible is not some textbook which simply imputes knowledge to us, only engaging our heads. No, it's something that we can delight in. Something that brings life and joy to our hearts as it reveals and allows us to relate to our God. Next, we see that the word enlightens the eyes. Each of us is blinded in our own sin. God, through his word, opens our eyes to the realities of our sin. And he opens our eyes to our desperate need for a savior and the beauty of a God who would send his own son to be that savior. 
The last two verbs that David uses in verse 9 function kind of more like adjectives. David tells us that God's word endures forever and that it is altogether righteous. Now, in the Hebrew, that phrase righteous altogether is in verb form, but it translates better into English. I know the difference between adjective and verb, I promise. So David wants to make sure that we know that God's word is not fading or temporary. It is eternal, relevant at every point in human history. Additionally, he wants us to know that like the God who has spoken it, God's word is righteous and just by nature. As I think about David writing these verses, I imagine him being kind of like the guy who has just returned from his first date with the girl of his dreams. After being asked how the date was, the question, what did you like about her, inevitably gets asked. To which the guy just explodes with adjectives. I don't know, she's, she's beautiful, she's funny, she's spontaneous, she's smart. We have so much in common. She's just so amazing. I think David feels that way about God's word. It's just too wonderful for him to put into words. In these few poetic verses, he gives it his best shot, but you can just tell that he is overflowing with amazement at the perfection of God's word. The final two verses of this section, verses 10 and 11, give us what I think is the application to the way that God reveals himself to us in his word. Look back at verse 10 with me. Verse 10 tells us that God's word is more to be desired than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. In light of all that David has just said about God's word in verses 7 to 9, he concludes that there is nothing better in this world than the word of God. It's more desirable than any amount of the best gold, sweeter than the best and sweetest honey from the honeycomb. And this begs a question of us, the readers. Is that how we feel about God's word? Do we see it as the most valuable thing in the world? Do we desire it more than anything else? Closely related to these questions is the issue of whether we spend time in it. If we love God's word and truly believe that the way that David describes it in verses 7 to 10 is accurate, then it naturally follows that we will intentionally spend time in it. So I want to ask each one of us, do we spend time in God's word? If your answer to any of these questions is no, I don't want to shame you. In fact, I want to say welcome to the club. I think all of us can probably say that we don't value God's word as much as we should or read it as much as we would like. My hope with these questions is that they will function kind of like a check engine light, which alerts us of things that might be going on under the hood. And so why is it that we don't value or desire the word of God? Is it because other things have captivated our hearts? Do we have idols that we love and are giving our time to more than God and his word? God has given us his word so that we might know who he is and commune with him. In order to maintain a healthy spiritual life, we need to be connected to God through his word. If any of these diagnostic questions have convicted you of misplaced desires or idolatry in your heart, repent of that this morning. And pray that God, through his spirit, would change your desires and give you a deep love for him and his word. Now, there are some in this room who are hearing me say these things, and they're thinking, Austin, you don't understand, bro. 
I've got four kids, a full-time job, responsibilities to take care of at home. I don't have time to spend an hour doing devotions every morning. Others in the room may be thinking, I've tried the whole devotion every day thing. And I'm just eaten up with guilt and obligation because I just can't get the habit to stick. To both groups, I want you to hear me say this. I'm not prescribing a daily devotional time. While daily disciplines and routines are great and are really helpful, that's not the end goal. The end goal is that our lives are saturated in the word of God for the purpose of communing with our Heavenly Father. What that looks like will be different for each individual depending on their circumstances and their stage of life. If you're single, only working a part-time job, you may be able to spend an hour in meditation and prayer every morning. And praise God for that. That's awesome. However, if you're a working parent of four kids, your time in God's word may look a lot different. It may mean listening to psalms sung over you on the way to work. Or meditating on a few verses with your kids in the school pickup line. To the Christian in the room who is burnt out and eaten up with guilt from striving and striving to do your devotions day in and day out for the past decade, I want to say something to you. Consider whether you might be viewing God and your relationship to him in a harmful way. Is God a harsh taskmaster who is constantly expecting more from you? Or is he your heavenly father who delights in you and longs to commune with you? Your answer to that question completely changes the way that you approach communion with him through his word. Yes, our lives need to be saturated in scripture. Yes, scripture needs to be given priority in our lives. However, what we need to remember is that one, the goal is communion with our father who delights in us regardless of whether we miss one day or dare I say it, two days. And secondly, this will look different for different people in different circumstances. What are the ways that you can intentionally incorporate Scripture into your days? Take some time to think about that this week. The final application for this section is given to us in verse 11. Look back with me. David states, Moreover, by them is your servant warned, and keeping them there is great reward. This verse gives us a negative and a positive application. First, it tells us that God's Word issues warnings to those who disobey. If we reject Scripture's teaching, we will be under God's wrath with no hope of salvation. However, on the flip side, this verse also encourages us that those who keep and obey God's word will reap a great reward. Namely, salvation through Jesus and eternal life through him. For those this morning who have rejected God's word in favor of your own way of living, heed this warning. For those who through faith in Christ are seeking to live faithfully in accordance with God's word, be encouraged that there is a great reward awaiting all who are faithful. So David has explained these two kinds of revelation. Now in verses 12 to 14, he's going to shift gears and conclude by showing us the proper response to God's revelation. How do we respond? Let's look at those verses again. David says, Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servants also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. 
In these few verses, David teaches us that reflection, confession, and petition, reflection, confession, and petition are the correct responses to God's revelation. David has beheld the glorious God of creation as he has contemplated the heavens and the sun which God, by his power, has made. He also has been challenged to walk in the fear of the Lord through the pure, perfect, and holy word of God. And as both of these forms of revelation have been put before him, David is confronted with how far he falls short. He is confronted with his finitude and the depths of his sin. In response to this, David does a a blend of reflection and confession in verses 12 and 13. In these verses, David highlights two categories of his sin. First, he acknowledges that he has hidden sins, those sins which he, because of his sinful nature, doesn't even know that he commits. And secondly, he confesses to sinning presumptuously or sinning in a willful and blatant way. David brings all these sins before God in verses 12 and 13, and then recognizing his inability to change himself, petitions the Lord in prayer to change and forgive him. In verse 14, David then concludes with a final petition, asking the Lord to conform his whole life, all of his thoughts, desires, words to the will of God. In these verses, David teaches us a very important lesson. David teaches us that salvation and sanctification occur outside of ourselves. We can't save ourselves from our own sin, and we can't overcome our sin in our own strength. We need our covenant God to be our rock and our redeemer. We need him to shower us with his grace and deliver us from our sin. We need him to make us into the servants that he has called us to be. When I was an undergraduate, I lived in a college house with seven other guys. Not a good idea. Uh, We actually rented our house from my aunt and uncle, also not a good idea on their part, uh, who had recently moved out of the area. Because of that, I was tasked with being one of the landlords. My job, along with my cousin who lived with me, was essentially to ensure that the house didn't turn too much into a college guy's house. We were to keep it relatively clean, mow the lawn, call in people to do maintenance, All that good stuff. Well, there was one time when my cousin and I knew that my uncle was coming back into town and that he would come over to the house to do his usual inspection. Knowing that this inspection was coming, we did our best speed clean to make sure that the house would pass said inspection. Well, there was one thing that we didn't take into consideration. While my uncle was doing his inspection, he grabbed one of my roommate's black lights You guys know black lights, those things at wedding receptions or skating rinks that make your light-colored clothes light up. He grabbed one of those, and he called me and my cousin into the bathroom. He plugged it in, and I'm not going to give the details, but let's just say that that bathroom was not nearly as clean as we thought it was. We thought that we were surely going to pass that inspection, but the black light exposed all of the filth that was still there. That bathroom still needed a lot of cleaning. David in Psalm 19 is showing us that God's revelation through creation and his word function kind of like a black light. They expose the sin and filth that consumes our hearts. They show us that we are still in desperate need of cleansing. And so like it did for David, this should lead us to reflection, confession, and petition. 
to help us in the reflection and confession process, there are two New Testament passages which build off what is taught here in Psalm 19 that I want us to consider. First, Romans 1 makes it clear that the creation testifies to the reality that there is a God and that we are accountable to that God. Romans 1, 18 to 20 say this, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. In other words, because God has revealed his eternal power and divine nature to all of us through the things that he has made, we are all without excuse when it comes both to his existence and our obligation to worship him as the God of all creation. As one of its creatures, each of us owes him all of our affections and loyalty. But in our sin and rebellion, we have become blinded to the truth. We have suppressed the truth in favor of our own false truths. Instead of giving our affections and loyalty to our creator, we serve ourselves and give our affections and loyalty to other gods. In light of these realities, Romans 1 reminds us that we justly deserve God's wrath. In a similar fashion to creation, God's word also exposes us in our sin. Hebrews 4, 12 and 13 say this, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. In its perfection, and in the things that it teaches, we can't be helped but be confronted with how far we fall short of the standard given to us in Scripture. As we've already discussed, God's Word gives us commands, instruction, warnings, and yet we ignore what God has said and instead choose to follow our own path. Like Adam and Eve in the garden, we are all naked and exposed before God in our sin. In light of this, we, like David, need to reflect upon these things, confess our sin to the Lord, and earnestly petition him to help us in our need. Don't worry, I'm not going to leave you here, because God doesn't leave us at this point. God heard David's cry, and he has heard our cries. Creation and God's word aren't the end of God's self-revelation. They are not all that he has given us. In addition to creation in the written word, God has given us the ultimate revelation of himself in the person of Jesus. Jesus is the one who the author of Hebrews describes as the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. He's the word, the logos of God, who was made flesh, as the apostle John explains. Jesus is God himself made man. And this revelation... The revelation of Jesus, the Messiah, is the only thing that can make us innocent and blameless in God's eyes. Jesus came as a man, lived the perfect life that we could not, was unjustly crucified on a Roman cross, taking the judgment that was due for our sin upon himself, and was raised to life, defeating sin and death once and for all. Through faith in Jesus and his finished work, our filth and our sin can be washed away. 
And we can once again be called sons and daughters of the Most High God. If you are here this morning and you have not acknowledged your sin to God and cried out to him in faith, this is the hope that is offered to you this morning. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. If you're here this morning and you are a Christian, meaning you have placed your faith in Jesus alone for your salvation, take heart, be encouraged, for in Christ you are already blameless and innocent of great transgression. In Christ, sin no longer has dominion over you. In Christ, the Spirit is protecting you from and strengthening you to fight against hidden and presumptuous sin. In Christ, the Spirit is conforming the words of your mouth and the meditations of your heart so that they might be pleasing in God's sight. Jesus, the ultimate revelation of God, saves us, and through his Spirit, he sanctifies us. Praise be to God. Let's pray. Father, we do just want to praise you for the revelation that you have given us in creation and in your word and through your Son, Jesus. We pray that as we leave this place that you would help us uh, to love you, to spend time uh, looking at the things that you have made and looking uh, at your word and communing with you through those things. But most importantly, pray that we would see Jesus and that we would unite ourselves to him in faith and that you would, by your spirit, transform us more into his image. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.